Hello, Ms. Powell, and welcome back to our podcast for Looking Like the Enemy. I'm Ethan A. for Discussion Director. We have Abigail for Evidence Checker, and we have Ethan Turner for Rhetorical Analysis. So for a quick summary of uh, what we read, uh, we find Mary listening to stories from other people. And she starts to compare her situation uh, in the camps to theirs. Uh, and she starts to feel a lot of guilt uh, knowing that more people are going through worse situations than she is. Uh, she volunteers for elemental kids as she states that she enjoys encouraging them and helping them. Uh, we then see her at the mess hall, witnessing family strength falling apart with kids leaving their parents. Uh, in the case of two uh, young boys leaving their father uh, to go join other kids across the room. Um, we are then introduced to a young man named Richard who ends up hanging out with Mary, but her parents don't approve of the situation. Uh, he teaches her things like how to play cards and how to dance. Uh, fast forward, a white woman uh, named Zola visits the camp and interviews Mary about her life in the camp. Here we learn a lot about her parents' background, and Mary appreciates getting sympathy from uh, a white woman as she thought that all of the Americans were uh, completely uh, hated the Japanese, so she thought it was nice to have people who cared about what she's going through and what everyone else at the camp is going through. Um, next, the military are no longer guarding the camp only for a short while. And at least the gates being open out so people can venture out a little bit. Uh, however, the military and government return because a riot breaks out at Manzanar, one of the camps, uh, causing them to issue a questionnaire to see who is loyal to America and who is loyal to Japan. People get beat up over well, what they choose, and Mary is, uh, finds herself questioning everything her country stands for. Uh, she says that anytime she would uh, sing one of the songs or do the Pledge of Allegiance, she would, she would question what the, what that actually means, considering that she's American, and yet here she is. Um, we basically um, leave off. Uh, we end uh, the segment of the story with Mary's family sitting down to discuss what they will vote for for the future of their family over the yes, yes, or no, no situation. Uh, they all ultimately go yes, yes, because it is the better choice for them uh, in the future, even if it means harm for her brother. Uh, so, yeah. All right. Um, so I had evidence checker, and my first part was to identify major types of evidence the author uses. So I mostly found that she uses um, pathos and logos, um, more often pathos, though because she uses it to convey emotionally powerful experiences and uh, logos to describe certain areas and includes pictures of the camps and other factors relating to the camps uh, to display a type of environment she and thousands of other people had to live through. This reveals the author's passion for into writing this book and how she wants others to understand at least one perspective of what happened within the internment camp. Then I had picked three, at least three evidence pieces of evidence to analyze. Um, my first quote was, pathos and it stated uh the strong family structure was crumbling the young were rebelling and there didn't seem to be much that could be done about it everything was changing and becoming more difficult for everyone especially for the isses all of this was compounded by the bottom line reality that they were that we were prisoners and our normal lives were in limbo so i said the author was explaining how the younger generations were starting to rebel against traditional cultural norms and she explains her own example of rebelling against her parents and uh she describes how this obligation to family is being tested because of the changes of the daily livelihood, daily livelihood within these camps. And it reflects back to where she doesn't know where she fits into life and who she truly is. She questions her identity all the time. 
Um, and then this use of pathos furthers her conflict of personal identity and how being prisoner in these camps have led to major changes in cultural norms and have adapted to American culture. I believe that this evidence is reliable because she recites her own anecdote of rebelling against her parents' beliefs and other teenagers who are growing towards a more American-like culture. My next piece of evidence was a quote, um, which was also pathos. It stated, Mary sat down beside us and told us about her family's experience after Pearl Harbor, her father's disappearance, the FBI raid on their home, the difficulty trying to save their farm and the evacuation. Hers was only a slight variation on a story very familiar to us. All I could do was nod my head in agreement, but my heart cried out in her pain and bitterness, which was worse than mine. So the author explains a girl that uh, she and Amy came across after walking out of the camp for the first time. Um, the, that Mary comes off as bitter and arrogant, but the author soon realizes that she is she and her aren't too different from one another because of they had pretty much a similar experience of how they ended up in the camp. And this piece of evidence uses pathos and explains the similarities of the pain that both Marys had faced when being sent to the internment camps and how differently both turned out. The evidence is reliable because of the emotional context it has behind it and it's a personal, uh, personal experience recited by the author. Um, and then I found Logos, which was... I had a specific quote, but it was more apparent throughout the chapter as they were talking about the yes, yes, and no, no votes. Um, how the author explains growing tensions at the camp and gives examples of acts done by like the war relocation authority to resettle the people in the internment camps. Uh, Mary uses, uses this to relay back to her own experience of quote unquote, blading, blaming the government from her mis for her misery, as she states, um, and how very specific qualifications are required in order to leave the camps, but not everyone could actually go home, like to the West Coast. This evidence could be logos because she states specific facts and actions taken by legal officials to fix the camps in a way and is used to further explain her story because she had to uh, live through every step of the conflict and the growing tensions um, and especially having to vote yes, yes, and have her brother be sent in to fight. And my last part was to eva evaluate the author's overall credibility based on her use of ev evidence. And I believe that the author was trustworthy and credible because not only did she describe her personal experiences, but she includes the pictures of actual camps and other objects to provide a visual representation um, of the, the whole thing. The author's use of pathos draws the reader in to makes you, and makes you feel and understand her experience on a deeper level. It allows you to visualize the events that occurred and feel for the author as if you were in her shoes. Um, for example, she explains firsthand experiences of the tensions of having to sign the agreement to be loyal, uh, like, to be loyal to the U.S. Um, and how people got beat up for voting different differently than others. So her her evidence is reliable, and I believe that it's trustworthy. Uh, so I was the rhetorical analysis this week, and. Uh, so the first thing I did was the list of assumptions. Um, and the author assumes that all Japanese agreement, uh, immigrants have no loyalty to the Japanese emperor. But that is not true for all of the immigrants that are uh, immigrants and uh, uh, Nasai that are in the uh, U.S. in the 40s. Because there were some that did have loyalty to the emperor. Um, also, she's biased that the younger Japanese are wrong, that they should, that for that, they are wrong for, um, they are wrong for eating with their friends rather than their families, and that is just not everyone's opinion, as the younger people uh, found eating with their friends was better than eating with their family, 
uh, and some adults even thought the same thing. Um, and the author appeals uh, to pathos uh, when she talks about her dates with Richard. Uh, dates in quotes because uh, that appeals to our uh, inherent love of love. Because even in the worst situations, finding love is going to make people's moods happier and have people relate to things because that's one of the main things we're always searching for in life. Um, they appeal to the logic when she talks to the women on her hike uh, and them calling out the BS of the situation they're in and how the riots are deserving and all that kind of stuff because logically, riots and civil unrest are what happens under tyranny. And where she applies to appeals to ethos uh, is when she, uh, the entire story basically, because she used specific places, specific people that could be called out extremely easily and be able to be seen as untrue with very limited effort. Um... Yep, I, I, I think that she's credible, despite her biases, because those biases really have no uh, hampering on facts of the stories, and um, she's very persuasive in her ways of talking about these things, and how her disdain for the U.S. government before meeting Zola and white people in general, uh, until meeting Zola... Um, Yeah, that, that's all I have to say, and I think we're going back to Ethan for his questions on the matter. Yep. All right. So, um, my questions these are fairly easy. So, um, the first question was, how do you think uh, being treated like an adult when it came to voting for yes, yes, or no, no affected me when it came to making her own decisions after having her freedom basically stripped away from her? I feel like it'd be a kick in the pants because it's like, hey, we're going to lock you up for your the, the color of your skin and how you look. But, hey, uh, if you want to fight in our military, uh, we'll give you the choice, even though you're not 18 yet. <laughs> I feel like it like further affects her like conflict of identity because she... She didn't even know if she wanted to vote yes, yes, even after like meeting with her family and all of them had said uh, to vote yes, yes. Um, so it's really mentally damaging, I feel like. Yeah. All right, so, uh, next question is, um, what do you think it would have been like to be in this camp? Uh, so, like, if you're in her situation, you're in this camp, right? How do you, like, what do you think it must have been like for you personally, like, to have a white woman come over and actually sit down with you and sympathize with you and understand what you're going through? I feel and like that, it you would know, feel... people are going to help. Sorry. Yeah, that's good. Um, I feel like it would feel really relieving that like someone who like especially a, especially a white person like in her perspective, uh, someone who had like a group of people who have always been who uh, I can't I can't even speak, sorry. Someone other than anyone in her camp, like, truly understands her pain. Like, everyone everyone in the camp had similar experiences of having to get pushed out of their home in, like, less than a week and having to go to these internment camps of, like, terrible quality. And having someone from the outside truly understand that probably feels, like, relieving because she knows that they she can feel, that Zola can feel her pain. So, um, 
it's probably really soothing to be able to talk to someone like that um, in her shoes. I feel like it could even give her some confidence as uh, mm -hmm. she now realizes that not all white people are against her and not all of America is against her. They just want uh, to know what's going on. And a lot of Americans didn't even know what was going on during those days. Uh, and I, I think it's a breath of fresh air for her realizing that maybe somebody's going to try and help her and her family and her whole people get out of these camps that they're wrongfully put in. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. All right. Uh, so number three, so, uh, how much of Japanese culture do you think was affected when these camps were put into motion and how many traditions do you think actually remained in contact both during, uh, the camps and when all of this was over? I feel like it was heavily affected considering that uh, in this chapter, she was saying how children would go off to eat with their friends instead of their family. So it was like tra traditional cultural norms were basically being broken down. And as a children, as the next generation was adapting to American culture, it will most likely put like a hinge in uh, Japanese culture. So for future generations, uh, things might've been lost and, uh, Cultural norms have just been, like, obviously the young, the older generations, like the Issei's, I believe, is what they're called, um, probably still practice it. But then the next gen, it just slowly, slowly disappears. Uh, I, I feel, yeah, it, it's Americanization, as she said in the story. And while, like, a lot of those traditions had been lost already, uh, she, a lot of them were lost even more because you had people... Uh, young people being able to gather uh, very quickly and be together very quickly. Uh, but I feel like it, it was less than if they had been like uh, a prison situation where it was a mix of races because these uh, all these kids are all Japanese, so they still had a lot of their values and a lot of their uh, traditions staying the same rather than them being completely flipped on their head uh, if they had just been with a lot of other races. And peoples. All right. So, uh, next question. So, um, Mary. Now, this one is just like a odd one. Uh, so, Mary mentions the methods that men would use to get a wife, which was you know like the going back to, uh, to Japan or the picture album. Which one do you think would be would have been more effective? And how stressful do you think a situ situation like this could have been? Uh, honestly, it's probably the picture album that's more effective because it, it's basically a surefire way to get a wife while uh, you don't get to meet the person, don't get to know basically anything about the person, but you know what? You're going to be legally married to that person just based off of looks alone, basically. And to be fair, that is how things were back in the 40s where women are seen as objects mostly and just something to uh, produce children and take care of a household. So... Uh, their feelings, their personalities weren't even a big deal back then. And we see that in a lot of media from those days and a lot of media and a lot of stories from those days. Uh, if we can relate that to like BoJack Horseman where you see his mom in the 40s is uh, like going crazy after her son uh, dies in the war and then they just cut a part of her brain out to keep her from doing that uh, just because she's like an object to uh, his father. Um, and then... We, you can, uh, with, with, if you were to go back to Japan, like, you might not have 
uh, find a wife if you go back to Japan. And it's more expensive, apparently, as far as they see. I feel like effect effective in a sense of getting a wife fast, it would be the picture album, but effective in like having a lasting marriage that's like tolerable to be in, even if they don't know each other that much, would be going back because you would actually get to see the woman and like meet her in person instead of meet her on the day of the wedding, or I don't know exactly how the process works. Um, but uh, effective in a sense can be used in different ways. So like I said, like effective in trying to find a woman just like right then and there or effective in having a better marriage probably would be going back to Japan. Yeah. Well, we see that all the time and, and but it, it doesn't. Yes. I, I agree with you completely. However, those marriages, like we don't see that bad of a, a, a turnout rate in a lot of these cultures. We look uh, to middle Eastern cultures and to uh, other Asian cultures where brides are set up with, uh, their husbands at the age of like 12 they don't meet each other until the wedding day whatever you know and, yeah, um, and but a lot of those people find a way to be happy because they're forced into it and they find a way to be happy and they find a way to to relate and you know maybe they fall in love with that person maybe they don't but they they try to survive and be as happy as possible uh not to say it's an effective way it's not effective in any yeah. way it's not good in any way i don't agree with it at all but people figure it out uh i'm eastern african so my parents my grandparents i'm pretty sure generations before i've been uh like arranged marriage so i kind of know a similar process and like i understand what, well, where you're coming from as well i just wanted to like connect like a personal oh, experience yeah. uh yeah. i'm czech and i know um while my family were not gypsies, there's a lot of gypsies in the Czech Republic and Czechoslovakia, and those uh, are arranged marriages. And uh, I know that my grandparents, while not arranged completely, uh, not specifically arranged, they were set up, basically, mm. by their families. Um, yeah. Cool. So. Yeah. Um. So, and then finally, so again, while on the topic of personal connections and just like, you know, personal experiences, how, if, if you, so, okay. So when the riot broke out at Manzanar and then word started getting around in the camp and then people started like, you know, discussion about what they should do, uh, like what act maybe their camp should commit, like when you hear that spreading around, how would you personally, because obviously uh, Mary describes her, um, she describes like being scared, like hearing it. Like, how would you, would you feel safe at all? Would you even bother to go out? Like, how would you feel if you were in her shoes? I feel pretty scared because, uh, one, if they fail in their riot, then that's going to force even harsher restrictions in the camps. That's just how it's going to be. And I'm sure we're going to see something in that book, in this book going forward, that we're going to see them harshen up restrictions and stuff because of uh, unrest and then uh but i would also be slightly happy because people are standing up for themselves and uh, i'd be proud for my people and it's kind of similar to like events happening now with like obviously the capital and um other protests and everything um 
so it, I guess it would be scary to go out because, like Mary said, she kind of strayed away from people who even just looked angry um, at her camp because she just didn't want to get into any sort of violence. And even when her brother's friend got beat up, um, assumingly for like voting differently than what um, a group of other people wanted to vote, it's terrifying. It's a scary experience. So for me personally, I, I would be terrified to go out too. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, all my questions. All right. Well, so. that's the end of our podcast for this uh, week. Thank you for listening to us, Powell, and have a good day.